I started a new series, It's Afterlife, and it's interesting, a few years ago, I was with some friends in the San Francisco area in what I would call an information-rich community with some of the brightest minds, right? You think of all the tech companies, all the things that are started out there. We were in a specific area called Half Moon Bay, and we were getting some last instructions from our captain as we were going to go salmon fishing, and he had left a lucrative job and retired in his mid-50s in order to do what he was doing, and that was to take people like ourselves, about five of us, on these salmon fishing expeditions for like this morning trip that we had planned. And so while we're getting to know him and each other in that sense, he finds out that three of the five of us are pastors. And at one point, he's enthusiastically sharing this idea of how to use this fishing rig, and he said, it's like the Bible says, give a man a fish and feed him for a day. Teach him to fish and feed him for a lifetime. So I'm with our five buddies and the three of us, you know, we're kind of looking at each other with kind of these knowing smiles and holding it in because we're, we're aware of the fact. In fact, I wanted to ask the guy, um, what Proverbs is that in the Bible? <laughs> Here's what I see going on. And many of you are aware. Most people are biblically illiterate even within the church. We live in a culture where people dismiss Jesus without actually knowing what Jesus said. They think they know what Jesus said. Often people will share their thoughts just rather literally about what they think about the Bible and and what the Bible has to say without ever actually investigating and doing any real study and work. It's just kind of a hearsay. And as I thought about my fishing experience, and I was thinking about this this series, The Afterlife, I couldn't help but think that our West Metro area is really not that much different than the Bay Area. We're we're a leadership-rich community. We live in an area of highly educated spiritual ignorance. Part of our vision, and it's so you had shared our mission, I didn't know where Lindsay was going with it, but part of our vision is to do whatever it takes to serve this West Metro in the name of Jesus. And, and if we're going to do that, we're going to try and teach as accurately as, as we can what the Bible and what Jesus has to say. Because we want to be a place where people can ask those big questions and they can wrestle with what Jesus said and we can engage with people with some sense of our own knowledge as we encourage people to study the words of Jesus, to study the Bible and understand what the Bible has to say. So in the next few weeks as we go through this series on the afterlife, what I really would love to do is, is have us look at what the Bible has to say about death and this life after death. What happens when you die? Where and what is this place that is called hell And what is heaven really like? And there's a lot of these words we throw around. We really don't have, I don't think, an accurate sense of the content of what that word means. And so this morning, what I wanted to do is just begin with the time that we have to talk about what happens when you die. And it's a very important question because all of us are touched by death to some degree or another in our life. It will come slowly in some cases, and it will come suddenly, unexpectedly, And every one of us, at some point, has had a a touch of the experience of death, or you will. 
I've done far too many funerals for parents with children where the children have been robbed from their parents and family far too early. Like one dad after a funeral said, I'm part of a club I never wanted to join. And parents of this club, they'll tell you things like this. Every year as their birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, or any important occasion rolls by, I think about how old they would be and what they might be doing. And again, I feel the pain. I think of my mom who shared about how at her age, at six years of age, she came home one day for lunch. Her dad was out of work and so he was home and he would often give her lunch when she'd come home from school and then she'd go back, walk back to school. She came home one day, knocked on the door. The door was locked. No one came. She sat on the steps. She left, went back to school without lunch, came back about 4 p.m. And there were a crowd of relatives and police and all kinds of other people around the house. And they took this little six-year-old aside and they said, your dad is, is dead. He, he was found in the basement. And I think of the pain of death, and it has not just impacted my mom, it impacted all of us. As she somewhat processed that, and never fully. It's the loss of a wife, a husband, a sister, a brother, long life, lifelong friends, a mentor. All of us are touched by death. We all have questions. We all face death on our own and with others around us. And one of the reasons we exist as a community of faith is to serve people who have no other community when they face the reality of death when it hits. And we've had that experience twice this last summer. People who have no place to go with the questions of pain and confusion when it comes to this matter of death. And Jesus, when he when he came to this earth, not only lived and died and was resurrected, he, he bring a teaching that he spread through little groups, little communities of faith, just like we heard here, going to the Amazon jungle of Peru, beginning little communities, little churches, in order to tell people the truth about what he came to tell us. So, 2,000 years ago, an event happened That not only launched the Christian faith, but it produced the most radical understanding and and reinterpretation around this idea of the afterlife. The resurrection of Jesus transformed a group of timid and despairing followers into an army of people who no longer feared death. And I know that death touches the heart, our feelings and emotions as deeply as any experience in the world. But in this series, what I hope to do is to share with you some biblical information, the truth. Because when it comes to life and death, I think we need something more than just comfort. Even in funerals, I try and just share as clearly as I can the truth. Because I have this sense that if we share what is truth, you're going to get comfort. You aim at hope and you make it wishful thinking you know, and comfort. But if you aim at truth, there's a good chance the truth will truly bring confidence and hope. And so this is what I hope as we go through this series. And what I want us to do is look at one passage in particular this morning. It is a passage that surrounds itself around a death. And it is a passage that shares about how Jesus came to this situation where there was death. 
And it's the one that sets up the actual resurrection of Jesus himself. It is a resurrection that occurs just about a week or so before his own resurrection. And it's not what I would call a discourse in teaching that Jesus gives. It's an actual life experience where he comments on and helps people understand what happens when you die. And so we're going to look at this passage of scripture. It's found in John 11. Verses 1 through 44. And I would summarize it this way. Jesus delays in order to display God's glory. That's a a word that we're going to hear as we read this scripture. It's a delay that that, that is going to display the glory of God. And, And the delay takes place in verses 1 through 24. And truth on display is 27 through 44. And there's a a, a couple hinge uh, verses that are kind of like what I call the hinge point of the whole passage. It's verse 25 and verse 26. And so I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read this together. Get the blood flowing. And let's let's read this verse in John 11 together. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Father, we pray that you would take this teaching, these words, and help us understand the truth. And maybe in a way that we haven't before. Give us the ability to share truth in ways that you are preparing for us to share with people around us. Open our hearts to your incredible love for us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So as I said, this, this passage of scripture I think is kind of interesting because Jesus um, will often delay in order to display the greater glory of God. So if you're in a place of delay right now, I want you to be encouraged. I don't want you to despair. There is something that may be going on that God is doing. In fact, what looks like a, um, a, a delay is often a preparation time that God is doing something. And so I often encourage people, when you're in this place where you're praying and you're not getting the answer, you're not, God hasn't said no, but you're just kind of in this waiting place, what I encourage you to, just to say to yourself is God's at work. It can be one of the most encouraging things. Just say, you know what? God's at work. Because that's what you'll see in this passage of scripture. As there is this delay, God's at work. And one of the things that comes out very clearly in this passage of scripture is that you only need to die once. So Jesus kind of makes the point here. He says, I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. But here's the truth. Everyone dies. Ben Franklin, in a letter to Jean-Baptiste Leroy, is, you know, it looks like Leroy to me, but anyway. Um, in this world, he writes, nothing can be said to be certain except what? Death and taxes, exactly. This first few verses in verse 1 through 26, let me read them to you and just make a couple comments as I do. It's in chapter 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured the perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So they send some people out while Lazarus is probably deathly ill at the very, very close to to dying. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory 
so that God's son may be glorified through it. There's a delay here that will display my glory. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. My guess is that when they finally got there to Jesus, Jesus knew by revelation through the Holy Spirit that already Lazarus had died. And so he, he stays, and, and then he said to his disciples, at a certain point, a couple days later, let's go back to Jerusalem. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back there. Their, 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 their fear was not so much for Jesus, I think it was for themselves. Uh, let's not go back now. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, but for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And that seems like, what is he saying here? He's basically saying, if you seek to follow God and you walk in his will, you can be guaranteed that he will allow you, he will, he will open the path, he will keep you from stumbling due to your own ignorance and your own sin. He, he will protect you from that which is trying to come after you. Because he, by the revelation of his light, will will make the way possible. So he makes a statement. And then he says, in verse 11, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus, remember a guy that, remember? Yeah, has fallen asleep. But I'm going to go there to wake him up. His disciples replied, which you can kind of understand, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. They don't want to go, remember? They don't want to risk their life. Jesus said, speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, guys, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. And then Thomas called Didymus the twin. And I love Thomas. He's the Eeyore of the Bible. He said to the rest of the disciples, come on, let's go. That we may all die with him. (laughs) And you get that kind of feel of Thomas. I just love his responses because... There are the Thomases that we have within our world, right? You may be one of them. Now here's what's really interesting. You need to understand that we're talking about a time in, in, in the life of Christ that has followed this whole time of the Old Covenant and, and there has been the, the Old Testament has been written and then there's times in between this, what they call intertestamental time and then there's Jesus who comes and then the writing of the the epistles and the whole New Testament covenant. And, and what I want to do is just to kind of explain to you what the Old Testaments believed with regard to death. I've never done a message like this, but I felt this would be kind of important for us to really understand what is meant here. Because in the early days in the history of Israel, the ideas about death and what happened after you died were really quite vague. There was quite a bit of debate and it actually um, people didn't have a, a solid understanding of what happens in the afterlife if you read through the Old Testament. And the word, that the Hebrew word for the underworld or for what is called the realm of the dead in the Old Testament is a word called Sheol. You'll see it sometimes in little print, you know, in a, in a, in a sub point, you know, the word Sheol is often used for grave or dead or the realm of the dead. And so in the Old Testament, it's really important that you understand there are no descriptions or pictures of what life would be like after death. It's pretty close, non-existent. In fact, if you read Psalm chapter 6, 4 through 5, this is just give you a taste of what they understood. Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. So he's crying out to God. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? 
from Sheol. Psalm 88.5, I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in Sheol, whom you remember no more, who are cut off of your care. You see, the Bible, as we see it in the Old Testament, is quite frank about this truth, that when you die, you go to the grave. You can look up the word Sheol. In fact, if, I'll, I'll read to you just briefly from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Okay, Not the liberal, but the evangelical dictionary. It says this, Though much of the Old Testament, through much of the Old Testament period, it was believed that all went to one place, whether human or animal, whether righteous or wicked, no one could avoid Sheol. It gripped you. It was a cage. It, it bound you. There was no getting out of there. The teeth... Its captivity was impossible to be free from. And as no one could avoid Sheol, which was thought to be down in the lowest parts of the earth, Sheol is devoid of love, hate, envy, or work. There is no light, no remembrance, no praise of God, in fact, no sound at all. One thing that is clear in the Old Testament, and even Jesus taught this, is that everybody dies. Now, there were two who walked with God, Enoch and Elijah, who were translated into the presence of God, but the common understanding wasn't real clear. In fact, what what I think is really striking is they did not come up in the Old Testament um, uh, for and and teach about a place for heaven so that someday you could you know you could be saved so you could go there. That's really the last two, three, four hundred years that we've had this kind of like, if you just get the ticket so you can go to heaven. The whole purpose was that you would walk with God today and you would walk translated right into his presence was kind of the idea floating around there. So that Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection of life. The one who believes in me will live even though he what? Dies. But if you look at the words of Jesus, he continues and he starts to teach something here because he wants to release a revelation of understanding to us and to his people. And he says this, and whoever lives by believing in me, by believing me, trusting me, walking with me, it's not a ticket just to get there someday, but when you die, you've been walking with me in such a way that by your, by my grace, I've forgiven you, and you know that, so that as you walk with me, get to know with me, get to know me, you will actually, in a sense, fall asleep and wake up with me. Does that, does that make sense? And so he says, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he makes a statement, which is kind of interesting, as he looks at Martha. Do you believe this? Which is it? Die or live? Everybody dies once, but not all, he says, will have to die a second death. Really important that you understand that, and that we understand this. So when people talk to us about, what does the Bible have to say? Well, just say, Jesus said this. You can go to John 11, 25 and 26. He said, you know what? Everyone dies, but guess what? Someone will have to die a second time. Jesus introduces a potentially controversial topic among Jewish Old Testament followers. Because even in his day, the followers within the Old Testament Jews, not all of them believed in a resurrection. Not all of them believed in that kind of afterlife. If you go back to the story, listen to what he has to say. We're going to look at John chapter 11, verses 17 through 20. Um, John wants us to know that Lazarus is dead. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany, 
was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now there was a group, there was a segment, the Pharisees and some others who believed that there was some kind of resurrection through the intertestinal times. In fact, in, in a couple places, the Psalms, there's a couple places in Isaiah, and then there's a place specifically in Daniel that kind of point to this. It's the kind of thing, there were hints there that some people look back, kind of like we can kind of look back sometimes and go, boy, God was at work, wasn't he? So there were some who kind of got these hints. And so she goes, yeah, she says to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And she said, no, 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 I am the resurrection and life. You're standing before the resurrection, not at the last day, but in this day right now. There were differing views of the afterlife, even in the time of Christ. Those who followed the Old Testament, which gradually through time was revealed, leaving room for controversy and disagreement. And only in a few of those verses I said, like Isaiah or Daniel, are there hints of a resurrection. There is no specific word in the Old Testament for resurrection. Not all the Jews believed in it. Listen to this passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 32. That same day, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus with the question. You see, in that day, the Pharisees, Sadducees, others were either coming to trap Jesus or they were coming to get Jesus to agree with what they believed in. So they thought they had a really good one, kind of a trick question here for Jesus and thought for sure they would get him. He said, you know, let's say a guy marries a woman and he dies. And then another guy marries that same woman and then that guy dies. And then does again and again. And seven times it happens. And then they kind of have the setup for the joke as they're kind of inwardly laughing, smirks on their face. They go, who does she get married to in heaven? And the res- Listen, it says, now then at the resurrection, if you literally believe in one, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? And Jesus goes, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. You're highly educated but spiritually ignorant. Listen to verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. And Jesus kind of points back and says, you have to understand, guys. You don't understand God's word and you don't even understand his power. Again, I want to read to you Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. In the Old Testament, the idea of a bodily resurrection evolves from a vague concept into a developed expectation. What they were concerned about all through the Old Testament was not so much about, and it actually says here, he goes, and the idea of an individual resurrection is not the central concern. What they were concerned about was making sure that the faith went from generation to generation. That was what their hope was. There were some like Job who kind of pointed to an afterlife. He said, for I know my Redeemer lives and that at last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. 
It's kind of a hope. This is what, you know, that he was going to see this guy. Uh, the closest is Daniel. I said before, 12 verses 2 and 3. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And in this era of confusion, Jesus steps on the scene, displays, and delays at this point in order to display a truth that he wants you and I to know, that he wanted everyone there to know. So if you continue the story, Martha runs to Mary, Mary runs to Jesus, Mary utters the same words that Martha was because you know what they were saying for those last few days after they had sent to get Jesus was, man, if he had only come, if he had only come. If Jesus could have just been here, he could have healed the sickness. And Jesus sees her weeping. As do the Jews who foul her. They think that she's running to the grave site. And John writes, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And so he asks, where is he? Where has he been laid? And John adds this little but incredibly significant comment. Jesus wept. It's the Bible verse all kids like, right? Yeah, I'll memorize my verse. Jesus wept. Incredibly powerful statement. And you have to ask yourself, why was he weeping? Those around Jesus, seeing him weep, this is what scripture tells us. They kind of said, and I'll put in my words, wow, Jesus really, really loved Lazarus, didn't he? He's really bummed. If he'd have just come sooner. And Jesus is thinking, and we'll say in a few moments, because Jesus really, really, here's what's going on in Jesus. Jesus really, really hates to see how confused and afraid and hopeless people are in the face of death. You get it? That's why he's weeping. He's looking out at people like you and me, and he's looking at people that we work with, and he's going, man, if you only knew what I knew. I came from a place in order to tell you the truth. And he looks at Martha and Mary, who he loves deeply, and he looks at these people who are weeping for them and for him, and, and he weeps at the incredible confusion and lack of ability to understand the love and, and, and this trust that happens in a relationship with God who loves you, who lets you say, I love you and I, I want you to have my entire life, I want, I want to live with you, who grabs hold of you and never lets go. And John also tells us what they were thinking. He's kind of, they're thinking, the crowd's too bad that Jesus got here late. Because at one point he says if he, if he could have, you know, he healed the blind. If only he got here, he could have maybe healed Lazarus. And again, we see this highly educated yet spiritually ignorant group of people who were in the, you know, steeped in the Old Testament. Missing God's word and his power. Now, I love this part of the story, okay? I love this part. And again, John tells us Jesus is deeply moved, verses 38 through 44, and he comes to the tomb, a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, very similar to the one that Jesus would be laid in. It was a rich person's tomb. And Jesus says, take away the stone. And they go, no, 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 they object. But it's been four days. This is the Middle East. It's hot. It will really, really smell. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you if you believed, you would really, really see the glory of God? So they remove the stone. Jesus stops and prays. And I love this. You get even his prayer is for you and for me. He says this, Father, 
I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Isn't that an interesting prayer? And Jesus calls out at that point, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man comes out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Lazarus is standing there, the people's jaws are on the ground. And, and Jesus is looking at Lazarus, still tied up, bound up. And he says, don't just leave him standing there. Take off his grave clothes and set him free. That's kind of how the story ends. And I want to share with you a couple truths. First, death is merely sleep for the believer. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 with the clarity of the resurrection. He says, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like others who have no hope. For Jesus, death is sleep. He has only come. When you, when you find yourself in the jaws of Sheol, in the jaws of death in that sense, he says, all Jesus needs to do is call out your name like you're taking a nap. You ever woke up someone from a nap, even if they're groggy? You need to know this. If you're walking with Jesus, you believe and you trust your life to Jesus, you are in this place, Jesus says, because that's why he says, if he believes, there's something here. Faith in him is important. The second thing I want you to know is believers who die fall asleep. They go immediately to be with the Lord. We're told that again and again. 1 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Or in Philippians 2, 123, Paul writes, I'm torn between these two places. I desire to depart and, and be with Christ, which is far better, but I know I have an assignment here, here that I need to do. People say, how does this work? I don't get it. I, the best I can tell you is this. I once had knee surgery back in college, and I remember the, the anesthetics, the anesthesiologist saying to me, um, I want you to count back from 100. I think I got the 98, 100, 99. <laughs> I was out. The next thing I know is I'm in the presence of my dad. And he's going, Kevin, Kevin, you okay? Do you hear me? And I was roused from that sleep. I had no idea what happened in that time in between. It may be that's what happens. We don't understand, but we do know that when we die, we are in the presence of God. And Jesus clearly taught and demonstrated the truth of the resurrection. That was something. Here's This is important to understand. The belief in the resurrection was unique to Israel. Nobody outside this little nation of Israel believed in this truth that we call the resurrection. You catch that? This was unique. Some believe today, and and they also did in ancient times, in what is called the reincarnation. That is, that after life you come back as another person, you go through these endless cycles, through karma. If you're good, you get a little better up the ladder. If you're not, you go down, and eventually, if you're good enough, you get to the point where you get to nirvana, and to this nothingness where you're kind of consumed by this sense of peace, oneness, mind, whatever it is. That is not the resurrection, and the Bible never teaches that. If you want to go to the words of Jesus, Jesus teaches right here a resurrection. Some believe that when you die, you merely get reabsorbed back into the universe, dust to dust, because that is all you are. Like a glass of water, you're kind of poured into the ocean of water, and you just become part of it. You become a part of the spirit of the universe, part of the force, without any real individual sense of who you are. And that, again, is not the resurrection. 
Jesus, through this account with Lazarus and through his own resurrection, clearly revealed what the resurrection is. The New Testament uniquely taught that we, that we would rise again in bodily form, that we would live in our bodies like Jesus when he came back and would never die again. Never, ever. You die once and you merely fall asleep to be wakened in heaven. Yet Jesus also taught that some would experience his second death. They would be resurrected yet not to life that is eternal, but to an eternal death, which means being separated from God forever. Jesus taught that. Not a very, very exciting topic to talk about today. But he said, very clearly in this word, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? We don't get uh, to be near people who are dying anymore. Seldom do we see what people saw in the past. Today, if we are with someone as they die, they often are so sedated that they slip away in a comatose state. But it wasn't always that way. Before hospitals and hospices, Christians used to expectantly wait for their loved ones who were about to make their earthly exodus to be in the immediate presence of Jesus. It kind of was a sacred space and time in which angels would show up and those about to pass reported seeing things unseen by those on that side of eternity, this side of eternity. And Jesus' followers were encouraged to think often of their death, preparing for it, living each day as if it was the last, ready to be with the Lord Jesus when he called your name. Going to bed at night was a time to entrust yourself to God, not just a time to prepare your next day, but as a preparation for your last day. My great-grandmother, Louise, was one of those who died before the day of hospitals and hospices. It was in those days your own home was your hospice or your family home. And as my great-grandmother lay dying, she suddenly looked up and addressed unseen presences, saying, Mother, Father, And then with utter delight, she said, Jesus. And she fell asleep. Dallas Willard says this. Jesus makes it clear that for his followers, there is no experience or taste of death. When you die, it is like passing from one room to another. You might might not know you are dead until you see loved ones who you shouldn't be seeing welcoming you. I'm going to ask you to pray. Father, as we move into this series, we pray that you would teach us, that Jesus, you would give us your words and give us understanding, and that we would walk in the light of that understanding without fear, confident that this death is nothing more than a falling asleep. And we give you thanks for that. We praise you and thanks. In Christ's name, amen.